Good morning, friends. I'm so glad to see you guys. If you are a first-time guest with us, hey, we are especially glad that you've uh, chose to hang out with us on a, uh, what I hear is a cold day now. Um, certainly dreary, but we are glad that you're hanging out with us nonetheless. If you're joining us uh, online, we're glad to have you here. You might be more intelligent than most of us because uh, you're nestled at home. Uh, but nonetheless, I think there is something to be said for gathering together in person. And so uh, certainly glad to hang out with you today. Um, if you got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, we're going to dive in in a few moments uh, as we embark on this topic, uh, God in our everyday lives. So this is our fourth week together. Uh, before we dive in and, and get to 1 Corinthians 6, I want to give you a couple of announcements that were not included earlier, one of which pertains more to the Edgewood campus, but I certainly want to keep you in the loop. Uh, and that is that the Edgewood campus is actually beginning a student ministry, uh, and it's going to be kicking off in the next handful of weeks. Uh, for the last 12 and a half years, um, basically, they've all, we've all been together. Uh, and, and so it's been an awesome opportunity to see a team of people uh, branch out and venture out in courageous ways to start uh, that ministry, and that we're su super excited about that. Uh, so encourage you to be praying for them and that campus and the leadership team around student ministry. The second announcement uh, impacts our campus more specifically here in Wills Point, but it is around us starting a Hispanic service. And so in the next handful of weeks, uh, you'll hear more conversation around that. But this spring, uh, there's going to be a Hispanic service that launches uh, as a third service here on the Wills Point campus. And so maybe you're here and you're like, hey, that would bless some family members who don't have a local church that is encouraging them to be fully devoted to Christ. And so if that is the case, then certainly uh, we'll have you uh, venture out to get more information about the times and what all that's going to look like. Uh, maybe you're here and you're like, hey, I want to serve. I want to serve that community and I want to serve and help and get that off the ground. Well, here's what I would encourage you to do. Whether you would be blessed by the Hispanic service or you would like to serve in the Hispanic service, you can write on the back of a communi communication card, hey, reach out to me about serving or reach out to me about the specifics and we'd be happy to do that. Also, you could talk to Jose Amavisca. He would be glad to discuss that further. Maybe you're here like, I have no idea who Jose is. Um, that's okay. My name's Brandon. If you'll come to me, I'll point you to Jose, and I'll make sure you know who he is, and y'all can begin the collaboration, the conversation. But that's an exciting thing, and we're encouraging that uh, as well. And it is going to impact us a little bit in this particular service on the Willis Point campus because we're not going to be able to hang out um, after the service for an hour and a half like some of us normally do. Uh, so we'll have to speed up a little bit to bless this new service. But those are a couple of great things happening. If you don't mind, that's a lot of information to, to take in, but I'm going to pray for us before we dive into potentially the most difficult topic in this series, God Everyday Life, potentially the most helpful and potentially the one that in a lot of ways um, I would wish to avoid and even you probably would love for me to avoid, but we're, we probably need it. And so may the Lord help us. Let me, die, let me pray and then we'll dive in. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for the ways that it pertains to our life. And I pray that you would help us today as we take on this topic in which helps us to experience more of you fully 
in our lives. And I just pray that we would be great listeners and not only hearers, but Lord, that we would be doers of the word and that you would help us to apply much of what we learn in helpful ways and that we would discuss that not only among ourselves and our families, but also with those who can help us take some steps in a, in a new direction. We praise you, we thank you, and we ask this in your wonderful, holy, and righteous name, the name above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen. Today, um, the weight loss market uh, is in the $200 billion range, uh, whether it be uh, new weight loss fads or whether it be uh, trending workout habits or maybe it's diet pills, whatever it is, that market is booming. Uh, they say by the year 2027 that that market will go from around the $200 billion to roughly $295 billion that we're on the climb, that within just four years of now, that it will have burst as it seems even more. Now, the reason I share that is because we are a self-indulging type of people, and we care about a lot of things. Even as consumers, um, I read this week that Americans roughly are spending anywhere between sixty-four dollars and $67,000 a year of their personal finances in things unrelated to their mortgages. The reality is, is that we are a fast-paced culture who likes quick fixes, and we want what we want right now. We're very, we're, we're very impatient people, and in the day and age that we live in, we have become a self-indulgent people. When I think about self-indulgence, I think about the very first time I overindulged. I was about 11 years old. My mom was kind of famous for making a Sunday lunch. It could have been a pot roast and carrots and potatoes. But this particular weekend, we had some family over, and she had made pans of beef enchiladas. Not, not a pan, pans, multiple pans of beef enchiladas. And that particular day, I, I consumed more than I should. Um, <laughs> I didn't have, you know, three or four enchiladas. I didn't have seven or eight enchiladas. I ate 12 enchiladas that day. And I can remember as I ate, one, I overindulged, but I also remember in some ways being celebrated. Almost like the kid at CC's who counts the number of slices. Hey, I bet you can't. And then we celebrate and applaud them when they eat 26 slices of pizza. Hey, let me show you. So that was my moment of overindulging. It was a both, I'm going to eat to my feel and past my feel. And also is an opportunity in some ways to be noticed and even celebrated and applauded. The challenge is, is that I spent the rest of that afternoon huddled around the porcelain white throne. It was a horrible experience. It, it is something that scarred me for life. And I'm telling you, as God's honest truth, I have not eaten a beef enchilada <laughs> in 30 plus years. Now, not only did that mark me, but it was the start of a journey in which I would say and confidently could say, is in some ways a thorn in my flesh, and that is the overindulgence in food and drink. Like, it's just an area that I've struggled with, and I can remember early on in my life is fad diets and, hey, trying this, and I've done everything from eating cabbage soup to South Beach diet to low-carb to keto to gluten-free. I've done it all. And the reality is, is that I have become aware that I am a self-indulged 
food addict, right? And you might not look at me because I think oftentimes when we think about self-indulgence as it relates to food, we think about a waistline. And I would say that even in some ways, unfairly, we might see someone who has a waistline that is larger than ours, and we may think, oh, man, they really struggle with food. Oh, man, they're undisciplined. I know personally of someone who was accused of being undisciplined on a church staff because of his weight. And in some ways was even encouraged to, to move off of a church staff simply because of that. What I want you to realize is that when I'm talking about this subject, I don't think you and I can make the assumption that someone is self-indulgent because of their outward appearance. I think that's a misnomer. I think in the day and age where we know and understand our bodies and the complexity of them and not only meta- metabolic challenges, but biological things, not every single one of us struggles with this particular area. But what I would say is that we are, by and large, a self-indulgent people. And today, if I could title my message anything, it would simply be this. It would be self-controlled lives in a self-indulging culture. Self-controlled lives in a self-indulging culture. Now, you and I might not understand maybe what we're talking about because we're not merely talking about food today. We're talking about a myriad of things in which we indulge in now in America that we would say are acceptable sins. So there are things that we know are clearly prohibited in the Scripture that we should avoid, right? Uh, We know that uh, even as Paul addresses the church of Corinth, there are many things in which he encouraged them to avoid for the sake of, of holiness. And there are things that we should avoid for the sake of holiness. That's not my list today. What I'm talking about today are the things we choose not to avoid because they're good things, but what happens is, is they can potentially become an idol in our life in our overindulgence. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but this is a debated topic and has been for years. Matter of fact, there's a guy named Arnold D- uh, Dallimore. He wrote a, an autobiography on a guy named C.H. Spurgeon. Anybody ever heard of C.H. Spurgeon, famous London preacher? Now, Arnold D- Dallimore actually talks about C.H. Spurgeon, and C.H. Spurgeon was known to enjoy two things in his life in which some people didn't know about, but others would have something to say about. One of those things was a really good beer. He enjoyed a good beer. The second thing is he loved a good cigar, a stogie. Okay? Now, the reason that this comes up is because there is a story about a famous preacher in America. His name was D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody pastored in Chicago, and his, one of his heroes in the faith was C.H. Spurgeon. And so he really held Spurgeon to a very high view, never met him, though thought highly of him. He traveled to London, and as he travels to London, he finds himself at the front door of C.H. Spurgeon's home, and he knocks on his door, anticipating the arrival of Spurgeon, meeting him for the very first time, in which it's noted that Spurgeon came to the door with a cigar in his mouth. D.L. Moody was taken back. He could not believe it. Like, it literally shocked him where he took a step back and he said, Oh, how can a man of God take part in a tobacco product like that? Which they say that C.H. Spurgeon was not phased by this even in the least. And even the things that I've read, he was not taken back by it. Because he had no real strong conviction to what he was doing. It's said that C.H. Spurgeon then walked down the London steps of his, house, his home and he said, Listen, Mr. Moody, 
I can take part of this cigar and I feel no conviction. And he goes, and I also feel no compelling to change anything if you have a problem, unless you have a problem with that. And he points to his belly in which he says, I see you to be a very large man. It is later said that Spurgeon would actually quote in one of his messages, I will put down a cigar when some of you put down your forks. So the whole question is not, hey, do I overindulge in food? Because I would say many of us in this room would say, yeah, I I possibly do. Maybe it's in the use of a tobacco product, or maybe it's in the use of alcohol. Maybe it's in the use of your spending. Maybe it's a frivolous spending. I don't know what it is that you overindulge in, but the point is simply this, is that we live in an overindulging culture. And it has a variety of places where it impacts our life. And I would just say that our culture overindulges in a myriad of good things that God has given us that if not careful, we could distort and make them real challenges in our life. And they range from, what, sex, entertainment, value, uh, or television, uh, money, spending habits, uh, bigger homes, Upsized fries, Route 44 drinks, double meat burgers. Why in the world would anybody order a single burger when you can have a double meat? (laughs) Why would you have the box combo when you have the Caniac combo? Why would you eat four when you could eat seven? And we live in this culture in which we have a variety of acceptable things. And the question that I would ask you is this. Where do you self-indulge? And I want to give you just a second, even think about that. And maybe if you were like my friend in the first service, maybe you just write a couple of things down. A couple of things down that even give you perspective. Like, hey, this is an area where I probably overindulge. Because it's, it is in some ways the idea of overindulging is finding comfort or satisfaction in something that is good. But it's also misplaced. And so an overindulging could be a simple glass of wine in the evening. And it's not the fact that it's just one glass of wine. It's the fact that it happens every evening. And it's the fact that if you were to take that out of your schedule, then in some ways you would lose a sense of of not only comfort, but in some ways ease. It's not, hey, do I drink? The question is, is why do I drink? And it's not that any of these things is inherently wrong, because they're not. And so you might have been in churches where a variety of these subjects, you're like, no, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this. Uh, That's not the issue at hand. The issue is, is, hey, what do I do? What do I take part in that I overindulge in? That in some ways, it's taking up too much of my life, and even the pattern in which I consume it is not a healthy one. So what is that? And then here's the good thing, is that... As we walk through this, it's not merely to tell you all the things that you do wrong, or even for me, introspectively, to confess all the things I I miss it on, but it is to approach it in a way that is healthy. And what does that look like? Well, I just want to give you four ways to live a self-controlled life in the midst of a self-indulged culture. And I think the answer is found as Paul writes to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In verses 19 and 20, Paul is going to say something in which maybe you've heard before, Maybe you've read many times. Maybe you've even studied. But I want you just to look at it in a way that maybe is, is fresh and new. And he says this to the Corinthians. Hey, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 
You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, if you were to look in your Bible, you had a physical Bible right there, probably in the heading just above this section that we're reading, it talks about fleeing from sexual immorality. Because here's what Paul is doing. Paul was writing to a church in a, in a, a culture in Corinth that is very much known for this, self-indulgence. If I were to take away from self-indulgence, I would just give the Corinthian church and really the culture in which the Corinthian church lived in, if you could just give them one word to associate them with the culture, I would say pleasure. Everybody say pleasure. So when you think about this, that's who he's talking about. And, and specifically, the challenge in that culture is that they had pagan worship, not only they have pagan worship, but much of that worship was centered around sexual idolatry and promiscuity. And not only did it have those things that were unhealthy, but it also included choice food and wine and drink. There were a myriad of challenges in that culture in which Paul says, hey, you've got to be careful of. I know that it's probably a difficult thing for us to understand the culture in Corinth, because we probably have never understood a culture of pleasure, right? Oh, wait, no, hold on. We have slogans and maybe even wearing tennis shoes right now from a famous brand called Nike. Y'all know their slogan? It is just, just do it. Just do it. Uh, what about uh, a Burger King? You know, um, have it your way. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Do you know Sprites? Y'all know Sprites? Anybody got it? Obey your thirst. Obey your thirst. Which here's the deal. You're like, well, when it comes to a Sprite, that's no big deal. But the question is, is if we are living a consumer, self-indulgent life, and every time we have an opportunity to obey our thirst, it could be a challenge, right? So that we live in a similar culture, and the, the warning that Paul is giving them is just to say, hey, listen, in the midst of self-indulgent <coughs> indulgence, you have to be careful. And then he gives them four reasons that you and I can live self-controlled lives. And the very first one he says, and is noted in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, he says, do you not know that your body is the dwelling place of God? Now, maybe you're new to the Christian faith, or maybe you're exploring, but for us as believers in Jesus Christ, we believe that God has given us his spirit as he told his disciples he would. And so for us as Christ followers, we believe that we are the dwelling place of God. That means that the place of God now dwells among us. Now, just to kind of give you a quick history lesson, that was not the case in the times of Israel in the Old Testament. The way that God dwelt among his people there was first in a place called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent that they would roll up, and as a nomadic people, they would take it with them. And God dwelt uh, with the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat of God, in one room within that, uh, that tabernacle. And it was a 15 by 15 chamber, like a master bedroom size. The Ark of the Covenant there, and God's Shekinah glory dwelt with, uh, among the people. But as they moved from place to place, they would take the Ark of the Covenant, which you could not touch, or you would surely die. And they would move from place to place, and that's how God dwelt among his people. But the challenge was is that even the people of Israel were very limited in access to God. Later, King David came along about a thousand years B.C., before Jesus on the scene, and David had a desire to leave the nomadic life, the tabernacle, which was covered in skins, and go, you know what, let's have a more permanent structure. Let's build a temple 
God said, no, you're not going to be the guy to do it, but your son Solomon will. Well, Solomon builds the temple. They commemorate it. They celebrate it. Now God now exists with the same Ark of the Covenant, but in a 30 by 30 room. So like a living room size or a little bit bigger than our living rooms. More like maybe our big oversized garage. That's where God dwells. But again, the proximity to the people of Israel is still limited. But it is interesting that when the temple was destroyed and God's Shekinah glory departs from the people of Israel, it doesn't return. And Paul even, Paul even is noted by saying, when he discusses with several philosophers in the days of, of, of the Grecians, he was in Athens, and in Acts chapter 17, this is what he says. As he's talking with a group of Epicureans and Stoics and a variety of philosophers of the day, they're talking about all these different gods in which he comes across a statue, to one that says, to the unknown gods. But it perks of conversation, even curiosity among all of those philosophers, which Paul responds, hey, let me tell you about my God. And this is what he says. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, which is different than all your other gods, he says, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. And then he makes a very, very, very intriguing statement. And he says, and he does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind, life and breath and everything. Now, the reason this is important is because everyone in that area, the Grecians, the Stoics, the philosophers, the Epicureans of that day, the Corinthians, all of them certainly understood temple worship. And they also understood that within that temple, they believed it housed a spirit of some sort. And they would even put up a shrine to encourage the spirits to, to dwell there. But Paul is saying, hey, there's something different about our God. He doesn't dwell in the tabernacle or the temple. He dwells where? In a place that's not built with brick and stone and mortar. Matter of fact, human hands haven't even contributed to it. What is he saying? He dwells in the hearts of his people. Which is why Peter calls us a royal priesthood and a holy and a chosen people. And the reason is because God no longer dwells in a particular place, but now in a particular people. And who is that people? It's people who have identified Christ as their Lord. Now, why that's important is because you and I need to know and make sure that we understand that just as God's presence filled the tabernacle or God's presence filled the temple, God's presence desire is to fill what? Our lives. Our lives. You mean the things that we know we shouldn't do? Yes, absolutely. But, but even the things that we are okay to do, but we do too much of. He wants to fill those areas too. And I think, and maybe I'm wrong, but as Americans who we have garages as big as many people's homes, we're okay with overindulgence, and we, we actually don't even see a problem with it. We don't even notice it in a lot of ways. And, and the deal is, is God wants to fill those areas of our lives as well. Now, I don't know what you're hearing this message. I don't know if you go, oh, I shouldn't do this, and I shouldn't do this. Or are you saying that? Look, what I am saying is this. You can't judge self-indulgence by the exterior of anything. You judge self-indulgence by what's happening on the inside and the areas that you know you don't want God to feel. 
And so what is it that you've locked off to him? Hey, you can have this portion of the house. You can have this portion, but hey, don't rearrange anything in that room. Hey, don't even go into that room. That's the question. But here's what you need to know is that the temple, your body, is where God dwells. The second thing is, Paul says to the church of Corinth is, and hey, you're not your own. So that's, the, that's a, a key point, is you're not your own. And the question is, do you really even believe that? Because the Corinthians had a misconstrued thought. The Epicureans, the Stoics, even the Gnostics in the day of Galatia, they, they not only thought that they were in some ways their own, but they actually saw that the spiritual life was better than the physical one. And so in some ways it meant that, hey, if I'm more spiritual, then I don't need to worry about this body. That was even happening in the days of the Corinthians. A lot of the Corinthians that were coming to faith in Jesus Christ, the wrestle was, now I'm new in the spirit, so God doesn't care what happens with my body. So if I'm renewed in my spirit, then that means my body is useful to do a variety of things. So if I please God in my spirit, I don't have to please him in the physical realm, which is why Jesus is, is helping his audience uh, in a variety of places see that he cared about the temple's cleansing. Y'all remember when he raided a temple and cleaned it? Yeah, that's why Paul, if you look in this same passage in 1 Corinthians 6, look what he says as he's addressing this topic. Look at verse 12. Paul says these words. He goes, listen, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. He says, all things are lawful for me, but he goes, I won't be dominated by anything. So he goes, big and small, there's a lot of things that are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. But what does he say? But one thing we should know is we should not be dominated by anything. There shouldn't be anything that rules our hearts every day. Now, what is that anything? You have to decide what that anything is. And it could range from a cup of coffee to your desire for a grand, big, old house. I don't know. But what he does says next, he, this is important, verse 13. He goes, look, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. That's natural. He goes, you have a stomach, and it, it does have a desire for food. And listen, the food has a desire for your stomach. It needs to be eaten. Then he goes on, and he says, and God will destroy both one and the other because they are physical. But then he goes on, and he says, but the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, why does he say that the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body? Because he says, listen, you shouldn't be ruled by any appetite other than what the Lord has for your life because you are now the Lord's. It's the idea that Paul writes, and you might remember this text in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's, that's what Paul's trying to help the Corinthians say. Listen, he's going, look, I get it. You think you're new spiritually and you're giving your bodies away to things. But what you need to know is God cares about all these things. Yeah, you may say, well, it's lawful for me. Oh, it's permissible. But he goes, just because it's lawful and permissible doesn't mean that it's a benefit. And he goes, and if you're overindulging in, a, in a, an appetite, particularly in this culture, where you're in some ways disconnecting the spirit from the physical, then he goes, you're missing it because the Lord redeemed you, all of you, including not just your spirit, but your body. Now, here's the question. Why does the Christian care about the body? I would say it's, it's two things. I'm going to give them to you real quick. One is the more we take care of the body, the longer that God's spirit 
dwells on the earth. When, you're, when your body goes back to dust, where does the spirit go? Paul says to be absent of the body is to be present with the Lord. So it means it, it leaves here. So how is God making himself known? Through his people. What happens if you don't take care of his temple? You don't clean it. You don't care for it. You don't maintain it well. It exists for a shorter amount of time. The shorter it is, guess what? The shorter God's impact in your life is. That's a big, that's a big deal. So think about that. And so obviously our life is impacted by the way we care for that. Paul even says it this way to the church of Philippi in Philippians chapter 3. He's talking to the Philippians about those who he would say are enemies of Christ because they're not living for him. And then this is what he says about it. He goes, their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. When we, when we set our eyes on earthly things and it says their God is their belly, he's not saying, hey, they have big bellies. And they eat too much. That's not what he's saying. He goes, their appetite is ruling their life. And friends, what I would say is this, is not only when we give ourselves over to um, the ruling of our bodies, not only does it shorten our time and, and life, but listen, friends, it, it gets the craving that God deserves. And God deserves all of us. And he desires all of our cravings. And so it's something to think about. So he says, hey, you're not your own. So not only are you the temple of the Holy Spirit, you're not your own. The third thing is, he goes, your body was bought at a high price. That's what he said to the Corinthians. He goes, you're not your own. Hey, do you know that you were bought with a price? What was that price? Well, Paul writes to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. It says, in him, which is Christ, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The only way we know God is because his son Jesus paid a high price for us. Just our spirit? No, for our bodies. Why? Because we believe that our bodies will eventually be resurrected and live again. So we care for our bodies in that way. Ephesians chapter 2, just one chapter over, he writes it this way. He's in verses 13 and 14. Hey, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Because of Christ and his giving of his body, he not only rules our body, but he also bought our body with the blood-bought, blood-sacrificed lamb. And he goes, you're not your own because you've been bought. Which then brings me to this fourth and final thought. If, indeed, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and we are truly not our own because we've been bought by Christ, the question is, what is our body for? And it's to magnify the Lord with your body. Now you think, okay, well that means I should serve him. Absolutely, it means that you should serve him. But what else does it mean? It also means that nothing should satisfy your heart or the cravings of your flesh more than God. And the question is, is what is it that I am oftentimes consumed by and why, do, why should it matter? And I would say it's the means, your body is the physical means in which God communicates his spiritual purpose to the world. And the only way the world knows about what God is doing is through his people, you and I, which means that our bodies shouldn't disqualify us from service to our king. 
So what we do with our bodies is very, very high value to our God. Peter writes it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So he goes, listen, as people who, this isn't your home. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He goes, may people look at your lives, the big things, the little things, and may they see the God of heaven and earth magnified in your life. But he doesn't, that's not the only place. Consider Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. It's the Great Commission. Maybe you've heard it before. I'll put it for you up on the screen. But it simply just says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then we're encouraged to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? And then it goes on and it says, and hey, just so you know, hey, go ahead and put it on the next screen, bubs. Yeah. And you're teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Now the emphasis here is obviously on making disciples and baptizing them. But I want to go back to verse 19. I want, you to, I want you to look at the very first word that Jesus encourages his followers to do. Okay, on three, we're going to say it together. One, two, three. Go. Okay, I couldn't hear you. Here we go. One, two, three. Go. go, go. Why is he saying that? The same way that he said it just before his ascension in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He goes, listen, you're going to go and you're going to be my Disciples, my witness is the word he uses. And you're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, why is that important? I'll tell you why it's important. We make the emphasis, and I think it's rightly placed on making disciples, but the emphasis too, and Jesus clearly had in his mind, both here and at his ascension, is that you and I are not to be a sedentary people. Sedentary means motionless. We are to be on the move. Now, why do I say that? I say that because in our self-indulgence, in our consumerism, we approach this idea in multiple ways. And I'm going I'm to share a few. One, we think, oh, going means praying for someone who goes. Or we think, oh, going means I write a check for someone else to go. Or I think, oh, going means we'll send missionaries through an agency that go. But going also means I can stay, and I can stay right here. And we have become a people who, in many ways, are a staying people. We would become a motionless society. Think about our society. We are an office-bound, couch-bound, chair-bound people, car-bound people. And listen, it's not just affecting our evangelism and the magnification of God throughout the earth. It's also affecting our bodies. If you were to take a picture of us right now, and you were to go back before even the automobile, you could take two cultures side by side and you would notice a huge difference. Why is that one difference? It's because our culture has been taught to stay. And our thought of spreading the gospel has now become an internet age. Certainly the gospel is going forth now in ways that it hasn't ever, right? Because of the internet. We can connect in meaningful ways. Ways in which Jesus wasn't necessarily talking about where he goes, hey, I want you to go literally to Jerusalem. Jesus here at the uttermost parts of the earth. Like in his ministry, he easily walked 15 to 20 miles a day. He was, he was easily, on his Fitbit, was getting 20,000 steps. 
And, and he, it was a going society where we have become a staying society. And not only have we become a staying society, but listen, when you and I are taught to stay, it, 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 it promotes a few things in our life. One, I would say self-sufficiency. Two, self-indulgence. And three, a reliance upon us. Because as long as I'm right here in my comfort zone, I don't need God's help. But that's not what he says, is it? He goes, hey, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Hey, don't you know that you were bought with a price? Hey, don't you know that you're not your own? And hey, don't you know that you're to glorify God with your body? And the question is, is how does that manifest itself in our lives? Real quickly, I'm going to give you what I learned in, in our regeneration ministry. Not because I think you should go to regen, but because I think it's helpful. And I'm just going to give you the quick ABCs, okay? Number one, hey, admit that there might be an area of your life that you struggle with self-indulgence. And then what I would encourage you to do is literally identify it. Like identify it, put a name to it, write it down, and then share it with your spouse. Share it with your journey group. Share it with other people in your life. and go, hey, this is an area that I've got to pay attention to. Not because it's inherently evil. Paul. Paul's very clear. He goes, listen, there's a lot of things that are lawful for me, but it's, it just may not always be beneficial. And it may not be because that particular thing is wrong. It's because of the usefulness of that thing in your life. So admit that. Start there. Going, hey, this is a struggle for me. Second, believe that, that God actually has the power to do something about it. So here's the B. I'll put it for you up on the screen so that you can see it. Believe that Christ is sufficient for our solution. Believe that he is a more suitable replacement than the thing that might be on the throne of our heart. And here's the point. Do you know why Christians should be encouraged to fast, although by and large our society doesn't? It's simply so that nothing rules our heart in the area of self-sufficiency. So if you identify, hey, food is an issue for me, then it means that one of the disciplines in your life should be to remove food for a season. Why? To make you more spiritual? No, to create a discipline in your life that helps you not be ruled by your appetite, by your cravings. And you may go, you know what, food's not the issue for me. Although, I would say the food is an issue for most of us. Matter of fact, next week's fin, feather, and fur. We're encouraging all the guys to come and gorge. We love potluck dinners they bring your dish and not only a dish for your family but for enough for everybody else's family and somehow we roll out of the fellowship hall and we're like hey man that was really good brother and in a lot of ways we we crave things in our undisciplined life that christ desires to be the solution for i don't know what it is that you crave or what you need christ to be the solution for but i would say that he is the solution, and he desires to rule over your body, just as he desires to rule over your spiritual heart. And here's the thing. Confess this, okay, which is the C. I'll put it for you up here. Confess. <laughs> Confess that we need God's, what? Help to commit ourselves to lasting change. The key is, not just confessing that we need his help, but for lasting change. Lasting change. Because we, we are a society of yo-yo dieting and fast solutions. 
we're a society in which, hey, if you don't like it, go do this and you can have your fix. And friends, I will just tell you, I don't think that's God's desire or his best design. His best design is found when we crave the fruits of his spirit more than we do our fleshly, self-sufficient, and self-indulging hearts. Now, think about the fruits of the Spirit. They are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and the last one is self-control. You know what self-control is? Self-control is saying, Lord, give me your help to commit to lasting change and the ability to say no. Train my heart towards godliness. But not just godliness, because... Food is of some value, that's great, but train my heart to be disciplined in spiritual ways. It's the idea that Paul writes to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 9 when he says, hey, don't you know that all runners run to get a prize? Hey, don't you know that boxers don't beat themselves aimlessly, but they in many ways subject themselves to discipline? He goes, There's, that's the difference between the mark of a magnifying life towards you and God is one word. It's discipline. It's self-control. It's the ability, as C.H. Spurgeon would say, put down your fork. It's the, the way that D.L. Moody would say, put down your cigar. Not because they're inherently bad, but, but nothing should rule our hearts more than God does. And friends, I need his help. And I'll tell you, I'm going to confess to you the area I need his help most. I need his help most when it comes to food and exercise. I'm very undisciplined in these areas. And listen, there are seasons where I become very disciplined and very honed in. But committing myself to lasting change has not happened. And I confess that to say, not that, hey, I, I, I desire a more toned body or I don't want to look better for my bride. I already look good enough for my bride, I promise you. Ask her, ask her, ask her, baby. <laughs> the reason why is because I know, I know this is an area where I'm deceived from time to time. This is an area where my cravings and my yearnings for food outweigh my dependency upon a God who desires to rule all my life. Why? Because I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm not my own. I was bought at a very high price and my desire is to go and glorify God with my body, to magnify him every way. And if there's something standing in the way, even if it's a good thing, I wanna make sure it doesn't rule my heart. And I pray that that's how you would think about this, problem, this, this subject. So if you walk out of here and you're like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a glutton and man, he just, no, like, hey, don't come to me and go, man, you really crushed me and stepped on my toes on this one. No, that was the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and more than that, listen to me. Listen, I know what it's like to be large. And I know what it's like to fight with that battle. So I'm not talking to those of us who have physical body things in which people would look at you and go, oh, man, you got to get together here. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about any of us who are ruled from things like caffeine to whatever it is for the glory of God and the good of others. Because if that's what God in everyday lives means. Help us, Lord, to have more of you and less of me. And help me to beat my body in submission in a way 
Not that makes me a martyr. And everybody else goes, oh, man, isn't he disciplined? That's not the point. That's idolatry. So that would you have all that you desire to have? Let me pray for us. Father, we need your help. And I just pray for a myriad of us in this room who we know that our hearts can be satisfied in ways that it shouldn't. Lord, help us to not desire quick fixes, but more than that, lasting holiness. Lord, help us to know that our lives aren't determined by the right body weight, the, the number on a scale, our size or shape. It's, it shouldn't also be ruled by a perfect image in the mirror. It's not ruled because we put creamer in our coffee or because we have too many sodas. Lord, like help us to know what really rules our hearts and then help us to train ourselves in discipline so that we are not a self-indulgent, consumer-minded people that miss what you want to do in the world around us. By and large, every one of us in this room is guilty in some way, but we ask for your grace and we also ask for your Spirit's help. Lead us to be more of your people in our everyday lives. For the glory of our great and holy God and for the good of people that we live around who don't know better. In Jesus' name, amen.